Welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers. Ray Davies is the leader of the Kinks, the great British invasion band who came of age around the same time as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Who. The band is always going to be known first and foremost for their 1964 hit single, You Really Got Me. The band has not been active since the mid-1990s, but there are rumors that come around every so often about the band getting back together to reform. Ray Davies has written a new book called Americana, and recently had the chance to talk to Ray about his experiences in America that formed the basis of this new memoir. The book has been published by Sterling. I started off our phone conversation with Ray by asking him what was the catalyst for writing this new book, Americana. Well, it, it, it started really where the book begins. I had the misfortune to be uh, shot in a botched robbery by a mugger and who I foolishly chased down the street after he stole stole my friend's uh, purse. And recovering in hospital, it, it was not so much the gunshot, it broke my leg and lost a lot of blood, but it was other related issues, life-threatening issues. So it gave me a chance to think about mortality, I guess. I started making notes, being a writer, I started writing songs in the hospital and recounting the incident, but then it made me reflect on the career, the journey it took to get to that point. And Americana is not so much a place, it's a a motive, a reason to be there, because the kinks came over to America and the part of the British invasion. And we we had lots of hits. We had about five hits at the time. But we fell out with various promoters and unions and and various characters on the road, and which resulted in us being banned for four years. So and I still don't know what the answer to that ban, reason, the actual reason was, but we were banned. At the time, it was indefinite, but they lifted the ban four years later to allow us to come back. But by then, of course, uh, we had fallen from the radar, fallen off the radar, and we had to build from again in the 1970s to start from scratch. So that's the next phase of Americana, the journey back, which took 10 years. Was there a possibility that the, that the Kinks were going to completely break up because of the U.S. ban? This was a serious thing. Yeah, well, uh, the bass player Pete Quaife left because, you know, he realized we'd lost one of our major markets. And, you know, being from London, being inspired, it's American music that inspired me. You know, everything from Dixieland jazz to early rock, Cajun music, country music. Hank Williams was a great hero. So we denied access to all that great American culture to us as being Londoners from the suburbs was so important in our evolution as a band. But when we came, it didn't, wasn't instant recognition. It took 10 years of constant touring before we made it back to play big arenas like Cobo Hall and uh, Madison Square Garden and Boston Garden and the Forum in LA. But that was a 10-year process and a complete image change from being the red, the hunting jackets of the early kinks turning into the muzzle hillbillies and then the people from low budget. So, you see, I, I've never had one image. As a, I, bec- I, I sing the songs and they're diverse characters. 
So I'm more like an actor than a singer, mm. and I perform my songs. So it was finding an not educating an audience, but finding an audience that understood what we were doing. And that took a lot of touring. And of course, the original band happened when there was no MTV, no satellite radio. So we really did literally fall off the radar. So that, that curve coming back was not instant. But um, a lot of supporting other people and playing small venues. Your uh, one of the biggest keys to your comeback in America, Ray, was uh, your association with Arista Records and and Clive Davis. It was a, a very very fruitful collaboration with Clive. Could you talk a little bit about that? How you first met him and how yeah. the band got signed? Yeah, before um, we met Clive, we did a series of albums for RCA Records. We did what we call the concept albums, soap opera, preservation, that we toured with. We even played preservation at Madison Square Garden at the Felt Forum. But it was not the chart success. They were, they were artistic successes, but not really commercially. But then I met Clive, and I'd met Clive before in the 60s. And we knew that we'd work together one day. And he was the, it was the ideal fit, really, because Clive had left Columbia to start his own indie label as it was a label that ended up having you know Whitney Houston but this is, these were the early days and I think we were the first real British band that he signed for an AOR crossover but you know and then he persuaded me to rent an apartment on the Upper West Side of New York where his offices were and we, we just struck up a relationship with a record company yeah, yeah. It was kind of ended up being monumentally successful, and uh, just to be able to get access to the head of the company that way in, in the corporate world is, is quite unique, and that was the key to the success, really. He let me to get on with the music, but I had someone to play my ideas to, and as I said, I lived in New York at the time, so it was an ideal fit. I believe it might have been the exact day that your first album for Arista came out, Sleepwalker, if I have my notes correct. I saw the Kinks perform in Chicago at the Uptown Theater. Cheap Trick were the opening act, and I just remember, because I'd been such a huge supporter of the band, it was like, wow, they're co- this is cool. They've got this great new album out. People are going to really hear about this band. And it just grew and grew. I mean, here in the Detroit Ann Arbor area, yes, you, you worked up from the, you know, the Fox Theater, you played at Ford Auditorium, and then you had some monumental shows at Pine Knob, the big uh, outdoor venue. And as a as a devoted fan of the Kinks, I, I just couldn't have been more thrilled for you. But the, the ride, as you describe it in the book, you know, is not all fun and games. Being on tour all the time is, just sounds like it took a terrible toll on your personal life. Well, it did. You know, a 10-year you know, touring phase is obviously puts a stress on personal relationships and several marriages broke down mm. as a result. But it happened in life now. But the, the touring world is a lot, a lot of isolation and stuck in a bar in the middle of nowhere on a day off. Uh, not Ann Arbor, I should say. It's always a good time place to have a night off. Yeah. Uh, but it's... Um, yeah. I think a few years ago I went to, we had a night off there and we had a great time. Um, but it's, um, it, it's, it is not all glamour, as people realize. And, uh, but it's um, was necessary for that process and the relationships fall apart. But, you know, tragically, my, my first marriage fell apart on the road. 
as as did Dave, so my brother Dave. So it's, it, it does take a toll. But at the end of the day, we made it back. If we hadn't made it back, it would have been a complete disaster. But there was some 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 result, even though maybe some people would trade a happy relationship rather than success. Mm. But we got the success we felt we were entitled to. Let's jump back to those days that you mentioned when you, you first signed to RCA Records. You put out, uh, the, as you call them, the, the series of concept albums. And I recently just got a copy of the, the reissue of Muswell Hillbillies, which was your first album for RCA, and, and remained so impressed by the songs on this album. Can you t- talk a little bit about the, the concept of, of that album? And there on this new reissue is a, a, a short demo of a song that I've become obsessed with called Nobody's Fool, which um, is just one of the most mesmerizing songs I've ever heard you write and sing, Ray. Talk a little bit about Nobody's Fool and Muswell Hillbillies. Yeah, sure. I'll start with Nobody's Fool, which was, I think, commissioned by a TV company for a little series they were doing about uh, a kind of an informer in the underworld in London. And I wanted to put a romantic slant on the character, so I wrote this kind of dreamy-like sequence, sequential series of chords and um, to tell you the truth it was more about me than the the, the theme but uh, it's, it worked on the TV show and it's um, sometimes uh, sometimes the unexpected songs tell something about the writer's interior I was doing work for hire but it turned out to be something more about me that was the story behind that and I wish we had finished it properly that was just a demo on the Muzzle Hillbillies compilation that they added to it as it was done around the same time. But Muzzle Hillbillies itself was, uh, you know, we signed to a new label, RCA, and it was not an attempt to shed the past. We'd been allowed to tour America again, but it was a way of looking into my family history. We come from the album artwork shows us against a a wall that's ready for demolition. Mm. And they were demolishing a lot of our history in the part of London where my family grew up. So 20th Century Man started, that was the first track I did for the album. It was simply about this man who was being moved from his family home, forcibly moved by compulsory purchase into a place he didn't want to be. I don't want to be here. And the country element came into the, it's not an attempt to make country music, but to use the, the, the thematic quality of the music which it's a storytelling device rather than copying country music and 20th Century Man kicked the record off and I think that stands up as one of the best tracks of that that particular band with the organist John Gosling bass player John Dalton Dave's guitar Dave's guitar entry is great on the slide guitar but it starts off with me just banging the guitar getting angrier and angrier then I look back at my family. There's a song called Uncle Son, which is about politicizing people, working people. And that's one of my sort of... I had an Uncle Sonny who worked on the railroad with my dad. And it's about him and his people of his generation, about how politics uses people. Mm. And then Holloway Jail really existed. There's a character in Muzzle Hillbillies itself called Rosie Rook, who was my mother's best friend. And the song really, that verse in the song is about my mother saying goodbye to her past when they moved out to 
Muswell Hill from Holloway in London. So it's almost like a social documentary song. The album itself is about urban renewal and moving up families to the new areas. So there was a historical element to it, and that's what drives me a lot of the time. If, if a record has a theme to it, uh, to actually tie the songs together without being an obvious device, mm. it's inspired, inspired by a family's uh, removal from their homeland, if you like. It's nice to be associated with a, a label that would let you do, I mean, you know, the, what you're talking about is, you know, not the most easily digestible subject matter, Ray. This is miles away from You Really Got Me and All Day and All of the Night. I mean, it's pretty fantastic that, that RCA Records were, were you know, under, under believed in you as an artist and said, you know, pursue this muse. Did you, did you ever have any problems with RCA or Arista in terms of things that you wanted to record that were more on the serious or conceptual side or did you have carte blanche with with say rca and arista and columbia in the later days of the kinks well the key factor with the rca deal is i wanted creative freedom and uh, obviously I, I got on really well with the executives and in the book i go into detail about they acted like gentlemen throughout mm-hmm. but the need the band needed to grow in america and we went on this series I think I did Soap Opera and Schoolboys in Disgrace, another album. I think we wrote and recorded those and toured with them in one year. Wow. <laughs> because there was a strict album delivery commitment. And in the book, I talk about the making of Celluloid Heroes, mm. which was um, a long, it's a long sort of poetic song. And uh, I sat with the head of a company, played the song, and he says, where's the punchline? What's the song about? <laughs> and then I guess uh, after six minutes into the song, it says every, everybody's in showbiz. He says, I get it. I get it. That's the title of the album. So there was a meeting of minds, and they accepted that I was being uh, on a creative journey rather than a commercial journey. And like I say, they acted like gentlemen. And um, Soap Opera was another album that was commissioned by a TV company to start a new series. So I developed that into a stage. All these things were stage shows. I don't know if you remember them. But, but as I say in the book, I met with Clive and we struck a, a, a marriage. The, 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 the deal we struck was let's try and get back on Top 40 Radio, which we did. Sleepwalker had great tracks on it, like Full Moon. And um, Sleepwalker itself got us on TV and got us on the radio again in a big way. And it built to... Then we had Misfits, of course, which had good radio. Rock and Roll Fantasy was a big radio track. Clive wanted us to get on AOR-oriented rock, which is was, was a thing then. And um, Misfits, Misfits was more to do with discovering our audience. You know, the Misfits could have been a good name for the Kinks <laughs> had we not found that name. Um, <laughs> True. But, and... Um, we, misfits seemed to come to our show and they related to the characters I was writing about in the songs. Then we moved on, of course, to Low Budget, which became our biggest gold record in America at that time, which was about the economy. You know, it's inspired by, at the time, there was a gas crisis, oil crisis, and it just inspired me to write those songs like Gallon of Gas and Low, uh, low Budget. It's just, I always get a, I I live in the world because I've 
done this for so long. If I wrote songs now, if I write songs now, it must resonate to the world I'm in, otherwise it would be nostalgia. Mm. So low budget was inspired by a political situation. But ended up, as long as it's entertaining and people can laugh and have fun with it, there's no harm in that without being preachy. Sure, sure. I was uh, saying the, the very first time I, I saw the Kinks was uh, in the, uh, it was the Schoolboys in Dis- Disgrace Tour in 1975, by, I believe, in Detroit. And you played, at that time, it was the Michigan Theater, and it has rather infamously been turned into a parking lot now. The facade of the building is still uh, up in downtown Detroit, but they've gutted the interior, sadly, and it is literally a, a parking lot. And I remember how thrilling it was, the way it was such a, a theatrical presentation with films combined with the live music. You really have uh, grander expectations that at that time than just singing songs. And it kind of leads me into, I want you to talk about the work that you did on the um, Charles Mingus documentary. I'd forgotten that you had done this, the Weird Nightmare film. Talk, talk, talk to me about your interest in Charles Mingus and how this uh, film came about. Well, it started when I was an art student. You know, music and art seemed to go together. I was studying painting at college, and and my my friend, we had a little jazz trio. And I was a guitar player. Stuart was the bass player, and Jeff was the uh, Jeff Prowse was a keyboard player. And Stuart, the bass player, introduced me to Mingus and, and some of the riffs. And when I started the documentary. I did it all for Channel 4 in England. And I shot it, built around a tribute album that Al Wilner was doing about Charles Mingus called Weird Nightmare. I got together with Elvis Costello and I said, would you narrate the film and be my little sort of narrator through the journey of this film? And Elvis agreed to it. And he sings in the, in the film. I think I saw a connection with a lot of Mingus' work and probably... He would dislike me for saying so, but I think he was very rock and roll for his for his time, and the way he put riffs together and the way he structured his music, and the imp- all improvised completely. And his widow um, Sue Mingus gave me access to many of his work tapes that he did at Woodstock, and they were incredible insight into the music. And I did research a bit, a bit, but I stopped reading the books about it because I found it distracting to know analysis about music. So I went just to the music and the riffs, and um, I found it inspiring. And there is a direct connection between people like Mingus and early rock and roll because he's a bass player. And as you know, bass drives a lot of rock music and the riffs. Oh, yeah. It really got me, was it? When, when I wrote It Really Got Me, I was thinking so I was writing a jazz blues song. Mm, uh-huh. but, but, you know, I'm just a honky from North London, so I did it my way. <laughs> I saw Charles Mingus in Chicago about two or three years wow. before he passed away uh, with Danny Richmond on drums, and it was it's in one of the, my top ten of the greatest concerts of all time. It was in a small club in Chicago, Ray, and the, the whole night was, was on the edge of chaos. Uh, Mingus was off. Danny Richmond was mad. Uh, I believe both of his parents, Danny Richmond's parents, had just passed away. It was just crackling with with chaos. But the the show came off just like a like a like a thunderstorm, you know. That was so powerful. I'll never ever forget that. And yeah. uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of. Fun, it's just it's just magical when it can work like that and not just descend into chaos, you know. Well, that's part of it. 
you know, it's all about danger. You know? I don't want to say the kinks are on the same level, but I discovered with the kinks, people came to see us play because of the danger, the unpredictability yes. of, of what was going to happen. But just going back to Mingus, finishing on that, yeah. it was a journey for me to make the movie because I never actually met the man. I just met the music. And just discovering through Sue and Jimmy Napper, who I talked to, who was an arranger, and various other musicians. What a chaotic character, but out of chaos comes great creativity. It's like that awesome Wells line in The Third Man, yeah. talking about peace and tranquility in Switzerland, but what did it produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, true. And you need a certain amount of energy to do that, and sometimes misplaced energy goes into anger. But that was the drawing power of the kinks on when we were making our comeback. So even when we played the garden, there was a rift between Dave and Mick on the drums. But somehow that keyed off electricity, you know. Yeah. Rather, you know, we didn't use, use pyrotechnics. We just had the people. Right, right. I can't let you escape without the inevitable question. What are, what are your plans for the rest of this year and next year? And they, do they include uh, this much talked about collaboration, perhaps with your brother and one more Kinks reunion? I'm sure you're tired of answering this question, but I have to ask it. Yeah, I'm exhausted by that question. <laughs> I'll start with the last question first. Uh, I had dinner with Dave about three weeks ago, and he talked about it, and I said, well, I'd only ever consider it if there was great new music to play. Uh, you know, to me, new work is the most important thing rather than a nostalgic reunion. I know people would love to see it, but it really depends on music. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's up, up for thought. I'm sort of thinking about it, about not promising anything. As for the rest of this year, I'm, Americana, the book, has got lots of new songs in it. Yes. And... Um, which I was writing in New Orleans at the time. And I'm just considering whether to go in the studio and just put them all, all, to, all to bed and to record. And uh, because there's some great new tunes there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, title, there's, a title track, there's a title track to the book Americana that goes through my head all the time. So I'll, I'll do more writing. I've got a lot of things to do. I'm planning a stage show with a, that might go into production next year. So there's a lot of uh, off-the-road work to do. Uh, people are asking me if Americana's going to be a stage show like X-Ray, Storyteller. I'm giving that some thought as well. So there's a lot of planning and conniving and backstage work to do. Mm. A few quick thoughts on uh, one person who figures fr pretty f prominently in Americana, who sounds like a, a good friend, a dear friend, and a, a, an important muse for you, um, Travis Davis. A few thoughts on him, and also yeah. I'm just grabbing out of the blue, Nicky Hopkins, who, uh, who worked on some of your uh, key early songs, who I also am a, a huge fan of. A few thoughts on both Travis Davis and Nicky Hopkins, Ray? Yeah, well, Nicky Hopkins... Um was I don't know if you ever saw when he when he first came to the session with us the first session he did he wore a little raincoat he looked like a flasher like a you know <laughs> I was waiting for him to open the, open the, expose himself he's a very gentle guy when I knew him I don't know what he was like after he played with the Stones but he was a really gentle guy when he was with us and you'd ask him to play he'd come out with this flurry of notes. It was totally fitting what we did. There's no no mistake that uh, he played with such great people and he played with the Who sometimes. 
Travis Davis is an is an assembly of a few characters. When I played in a in a bar, I, my first band I played in was a West Indian R&B band in Soho in London, and um, I, there were a lot of older musicians. I was about 16 at the time, and a lot of the old jazz guys were playing sax players and things like that, telling me to get my licks together. And I let, they let me do one solo and. Um, I did the solo at the end of the set. Not many people there. He came up. He came up to me and said, "You know that was a good solo. You got promise, but you're too loud." And he he developed over the years a combination of a few great people I've met and is a muse. Um, whenever I write a good riff, whenever I write a good riff, I imagine him standing over my shoulder. Uh, uh, uh. Will there be another? Uh Kinks reissue similar to Muswell Hillbilly soon. Any plans to reissue the Lola album with bonus tracks, Ray? Yeah, I think I think that's on the cards. Mm. You know, there's so many unreleased tracks around the Kinks, particularly from the Arista days. There's about 40, 40 unreleased songs or partly completed tracks. So it really depends what I want to do with the rest of my life, whether I want to do that or write new stuff. Yeah, yeah. And a final question here. What do you consider uh, is your greatest accomplishment as an artist so far in your life? In my life? Yeah. I think yeah. Getting, through, getting through Americana and coming to terms with acceptance about certain things and um, being able to continue the journey after going through that experience. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I, I hope we see you somewhere in Southeast Michigan, be it uh, Ann Arbor or Detroit, uh, sooner rather than later, my friend. Congratulations on your book, and thanks for the conversation this morning. I dearly, dearly appreciate it. It's my pleasure, man. Good luck.